This podcast has now been referenced in keynote speeches at Arabia HQ, Architects Journal, BD Online, and GB News. Hello, Jason here. Before I start the podcast, I would just like to share some news. The Brock Architect podcast is now raising money for the Architects Benevolence Society. And I have set a target of £1,500 by December the 15th, 2023. Please consider donating as you never know when you yourself would need help. Links in the show notes. Now back to the podcast. This is season two of The Broke Architect. I have a question for you. Are you an architect and are you f***ing broke? If the answer is yes, it's what I've suspected for many years, as I am indeed an architect myself. This podcast is about debt in the profession of architecture, and I want to hear from you. Are you just surviving month to month with no extra money for savings? Or are you seriously broke and in debt, and stress and worry about your income? Or does your wife, husband, or significant other earn substantially more than you which gives you a great life, given the ability to choose your clients, when you work and who for, or have you attained financial freedom in architecture? If you're in the first two categories, surviving month to month or facing financial difficulties, how is this affecting your mental health? Are you suffering from depression or even despair? Please share, subscribe, and comment to support the channel. I have with me today Marsha Ramroop, an award-winning inclusive cultural strategist. And Marsha has a truly amazing career to date as a BBC journalist and inclusion and communities editor, and then took up an important role as director of inclusion at the RIBA and has recently set up her own consultancy, Unheard Voice. Now, firstly, welcome to the second series of the Broke Architect podcast. And I just wanted to ask, how are you today? I'm really nervous. (laughs) I'm used to doing podcasts. In fact, I even produce them for other people. And of course, I'm used to doing any kind of speaking. But this this is a biggie, Jason. (laughs) So I'm, I'm a bit nervous. And um I haven't really prepared I just want to really try to answer and and I know that you ask some tough questions but I just really want to answer them honestly and authentically that's wonderful and I'm getting you back for Arabia radio (laughs) yeah fair enough I hear that (laughs) (laughs) how does it feel to be self-employed yeah, really, really interesting time. Um, I did set up Unheard Voice about five years ago, and I was doing it as a bit of a side hustle, actually six years ago now. Gosh, time flies. Yeah. And I was at uh, the BBC, it was a bit of a side hustle, and then I chose to leave the BBC. And when I did so, I wrote myself a little post-it, which I still have up on my wall here. And it says, transformational change, counterintuitive decisions, let go of the past to embrace the next stage like a trapeze artist. And when I decided to to sort of take um, Unheard Voice, uh, well, obviously I mothballed it to go to Reba and then um, decided to restart it again um, when I left. It it was exactly like that all over again, um, reaching out, swinging, uh, flying through the air and hoping that I'd grab hold of that trapeze swing 
and um, the first year, unbelievably, it's been a year, uh, has gone well. And I'm I'm pleased that um, I can, you know, still clothe and feed my family. <laughs> but one of the things about it is that it's scary. I, I have spent most of my life in employment and that security of a solid salary, having a pension, uh, those other benefits, sick leave, like none of that when you're a paid holiday <laughs> none of that when you're self-employed not necessarily anyway not until you're really quite well established so yeah but it's scary but it's good and I'm enjoying the flexibility and freedom of it that's a good answer and uh, as you know I'm being fully employed all my life but my my other half has uh, been a freelancer all her life um, so I, I I get it I we are here both sides um, it's lovely, but maybe we can start just by giving the listeners a summary of your expertise as you know, that you have this new company, Unheard Voice, which it is a consultancy focused on equity, diversity and inclusive cultural change in organizations. But you use this word cultural intelligence, you know, can you just tell us more about that? I'd be delighted to, yes. If you want a summary of my expertise, I suppose I've been doing this kind of work for 20 years. Um, I had not necessarily had the consultancy, but when I was working at the BBC, I was working directly in communities. So going out into them, listening to their voices, understanding their perspectives, um, helping them shape how they wanted their stories told. So I um, initiated a number of different media literacy projects and helping people tell their stories on BBC platforms. And as I sort of worked my way up into sort of managerial and leadership roles, I continued with a you know, very clear idea that those of us in the newsroom didn't necessarily have the answer as to what the news agenda should be, certainly out in the community, that's where it was. So my um, inclusive um, lens, if you like, was always applied in terms of how I did my role. I, I then also did things like instigating inclusive recruitment programs, inclusive uh, programming as well, and thinking about how we did our reporting. So I sort of helped reporters with that and with their cultural intelligence there as well. So cultural intelligence, also known as CQ, because um, Q stands for quotient, it's a measure as well as an improvable skill. The actual definition of it is the capability to work and relate effectively across difference. An actual skill is capability, but really importantly, it's got 20 years of academic research behind it, that if you are high in cultural intelligence, you will behave inclusively. And another thing you may have heard me say is that um, inclusion isn't about other people and their identities or their characteristics. It's about us and our behaviours. So it's an introspective piece of work, first and foremost, into what is it about me? What is it about us? What is it about our team? What is it about organisation that needs to change so we can be more inclusive of you, whoever you are? And that's a personal and an organizational behavioral piece. And when you get that, when you get the motivation and the knowledge and the strategy and the action, which are the four capabilities of CQ, then you have the um, behavioral framework to create, implement and enforce the procedures, policies and practices in order to be inclusive. 
And so that's the sort of foundation of the framework, as well as a change model that I bring into organisations in order to try to bring about inclusive overall change. That's both, you know, underpinning and overarching. And I love that explanation. It's it's very clear for me, but it where does it start for me? You know, does it start with the organisation, the leaders at the top, or does it does it start does it start at the bottom and, and can it feed up? What what's your thoughts on that? Really interesting. <laughs> Having a very similar conversation with someone in architectural practice earlier today, where the work is being done at the bottom, but it really isn't being done at the top. In an organisation, especially architectural practices, which for the most part are fairly hierarchical, so they're run by partners and directors, and then you've got your um, assistant directors and um, other staff. It's really, really important that the leadership are role modelling and are on board with what it means to be an inclusive organisation, because unless they're on board, the vast majority of the efforts of staff who are there to do other jobs, actually, they're not there to be inclusion and diversity EDI experts. They're there probably to be architects and project managers, uh, designers. So we really shouldn't be asking them to do the EDI work, which is a particular area of expertise. So leadership need to understand that the culture of any organisation is shaped by the worst behaviours leaders are willing to tolerate. That's a quote from Gruner and Whitaker from 2015. And I tend to flip that and say the culture of any organisation can be shaped by the best behaviours leaders are willing to demonstrate. So what are those behaviours? How do we demonstrate them? Well, it starts with a cultural intelligence piece and being able to do that introspective piece of work. What is it about me that needs to change? Because ultimately, we're all biased. To be human is to be biased. And so uh, we need to be able to have a framework of behaviours to help us make our bias, our unhelpful bias, conscious. We need to create procedural changes to mitigate the impact of our hidden unhelpful bias. And in order to do that, um, we need to look at ourselves, really start to consciously look at our behaviours, listen to the feedback when it's given to us about when we've got it wrong, not be defensive. I always say have the emotional maturity not to be defensive about that feedback, because we have to listen in order to learn and grow and change so that we can create better and lead better organisations. Wonderful. Wonderful. You've crystallised everything for me there. And I've heard you on a number of different platforms. And just thank you for, for setting, setting that scene. And we met on LinkedIn through a wonderful initiative, RIBA Radio. And I just want to ask, were you proud of the RIBA radio? Because I feel it got a lot of attention at the time. I was hugely proud of Rebrady. I'm still proud of it. In fact, just uh, off camera, I know this isn't on, on camera, but I've got the sign still from uh, Reba Radio, which is real, inclusive, brilliant action. One of the great things about doing Reba Radio was for me, it was my ikigai. I don't know if you're familiar with the term ikigai, but it's when you can do something that's useful for the world, that you love doing, that you're good at, and you can get paid for. It brought all of my area of my broadcasting expertise and my inclusion expertise together to produce for the long term a set of resources that not just members, but across the built environment, 
they can still access and they can still get that insight into what is unconscious bias, what is cultural intelligence, how can we um, turn something like the inclusion charter into meaningful action, what is menopause policy, how do we do inclusive recruitment, what is it what does it mean to have the lived experience of uh, LGBTQ plus lives, what is the gender pay gap, how are people doing it well in in the in the sector already, and all of that is is still there for anybody to listen to. I'm hugely, hugely proud of that, but it isn't all that I did. And and another piece of work that I just want to um, talk about, just because it's just come out recently, is the REBA uh, plan of work overlay for inclusive design. Paris Wilson and Jenny McLaughlin and Alex Tate, uh, one of the directors at REBA, and myself got together on a call like two and a half years ago to start talking about that idea and to be able to support Paris through that and and to see her um, blossom and grow and develop with that work has been a huge source of pride, massive. And so I'm delighted, delighted to to see that come to fruition because it's hugely, hugely important. That alongside the work that um, Neil Chassel has done at the LSA with um, some people around the Towards Spatial Justice co-design overlay are two really, really important overlays, which I'm so delighted to see out in the world. Of course, the cultural intelligence work that I did at um, at Reba, the staff, the contemporaneous staff feedback for that was so overwhelming that it won global awards. Another piece of work that I'm so proud of is I, in a notorious staff meeting, I launched our menopause guidance. It's notorious because I, I kind of maybe got the tone wrong. Well, I did. I got the tone wrong a little bit because uh, alongside me doing talking about menopause guidance, there were some other announcements about transformation and things like that. And when I when I was talking about menopause, I was trying to be funny and some people felt the juxtaposition wasn't wasn't great. When I acknowledged the mistake that I'd made, one of the key things that happened was that people really understood what the menopause and uh, guidance was there for. When uh, it's close to the time I was leaving, some a manager actually came up to me and said, one of my staff came up to me and said um, that they were having really bad period pains. We were able to have that conversation, that really open and honest conversation. She felt that she could talk to me because of the way that you had spoken about your experience in the menopause and um, and in influencing and in introducing the guidance. Mm-hmm. So that is huge. That was huge for me. So that's some of the many things that I'm proud of the work that I've done there. No, you got a you got a lot done. I feel in the short period of time you were at the RIBA, I definitely would say would say that feedback from from architects is that. Let's talk about breakups. Why did you fall in love with architecture, and how do you handle breakups? Because you resigned from the RIBA after only thirteen months, and the reason quoted in Dazine was. Your budget had been significantly cut as a part as part of RIBA's restructuring. You know what can you say on this matter? I'm just going to take a little gasp. <laughs> the way that the um, the questions being phrased has touched a nerve a bit. Um, how do I handle breakup? You say you fell in love with architecture. I d- yes, I did. I did, and I and peep the people. Such creative, amazing people. I mean, I have to say, like most of the staff that I was with at the Reba were inf- 
amazing amazing people to work with you know if you're talking about breakups and I talk about love <laughs> and we talk about being in love and I you know that's there's no word of a lie that that's that's a real thing and so walking away from it was incredibly hard incredibly hard but it's something I felt I had to do to protect myself and my ability to to function as a human being I felt that I left well I felt that I wanted to continue to do this work that was so necessary in this sector, the profession, there's no doubt that architecture and the built environment overall, we must, we must do this work. We must have an inclusive and diverse sector because it's so important into how we live with each other, how we develop our societies. And I, I, was so clear that I wanted to continue to do this work alongside Reba, maybe not inside, but alongside. So I hoped and I tried to leave well, but it was hard because the personal relationships were there. Yeah, so that's, what can I say? I don't know what else to say about that. I Is it all I can say in terms about the budget? Um, you know, that's that's common knowledge that, you know, Reba's in straightened times and yeah. of course, places face budget cuts. Um, I think it's just really important when you set out to do a piece of work that it is supported in all kinds of ways. Uh, there's the uh, moral support, there's the financial support, there's the um, structural support. There's, you know, the effort and expertise support. There's the agency with which um, that role should be given. So those are the kinds of things that I think are necessary when when trying to do a role um, like a director of inclusion role. I hope that's okay. No, no. I mean, breakups are, breakups can be can be quite sad, and I think the it sounds to me it sounds to me like it was a breakup, but you left on positive. I you... thought that was the case. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I will. Uh, we'll leave that question there. <laughs> what What's your opinion on your replacement, Robbie Turner? I just thought I'd ask you that question. Well, so Jason, you know, I, I have to hand it to you <laughs> because you know, you're as a journalist, as a former journalist, I. Uh, value being asked the the questions that people want to know the answers to um so in answering that question I I actually you know what I don't I don't know him I don't he's been in uh, he's been in post now um seven eight nine months maybe I would give you an opinion um if I if he had a right of reply and I uh, and I felt like I could say something meaningful, but I, I honestly, I don't, I don't, I haven't spent enough time with him to to tell you really anything um, useful. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Same here, but we'll we'll move on. But I mean, my next question really is, you know, do you have any thoughts on the recruitment process for for your replacement you know you must um you must have gone through a, a a process um you know i went through a process when i was going to um well I, when i applied for the membership board committee but you know do you have any thoughts on 
recruitment processes. And maybe if you don't want to answer this directly towards our IPA, you can say, you can maybe give me an example of other organizations you've had experience with. What I, I mean, what I would say is that um, I encourage people to go for the role. I didn't, uh, you know, uh, I had a number of women, women of color who had, you know, good experience, 10, 5, 10 years experience. So I knew that they could they could pick up and, and do the role. So when they asked me whether they should go for it, I said yes. And the reason why I said yes is that I said they'd have three things that I didn't. The first is that they would have a new CEO who at the time, because I think it's almost a year ago now, isn't it, that these processes happened. So we didn't know who the new CEO was, but um, we we knew that the previous one had had resigned. So I said, you'll have a new CEO. I said, you'll have a new president, because, of course, that process was in place at the time as well. Again, we didn't know who it was going to be. And I said, you're going to have me in your corner because um, I, I would I'm here to support and we need as many voices um, as we possibly can doing good work to create a device, um, a diverse and inclusive and equitable sector. So I, I'm still going to be knocking around doing bits and bobs and um, I'm here to support. That's what I told that told these women. Obviously, they none of them got the job. Um, so uh, but the, the point is, um, I think this I don't actually think any of them were shortlisted, which is a shame. But I think when you're looking at what does it mean to create really good EDI teams, you need people with good experience, good expertise um, to be able to shape those policies, procedures and practices, but also to support the behavioural work that requires, you know, all sorts of different um, skills, uh, not only sort of the management. Um, so I have a postgraduate um, in um, in business management, which included things like organisational development and organisational behaviour. Plus, um, I've led and uh, constructed leadership programmes as well. So that is um, including various skills, including um, inclusion. So those are the kinds of skills that I think are required to be able to do this kind of organisational work well, as well as being a leader in the organisation to support other um, pillars of the organisation. But the work needs support, time, resource, effort, agency and money. Anyone like looking to recruit for uh, senior leaders in EDI need to ensure they've got those things in place. So anyone coming in doesn't, you know, turn straight back out again because they don't have the support, time, resource, effort, agency and money to be able to do so. I can tell you care a lot about these things because, you know, you, the last thing you want to do is leave an organization. You've put a lot of effort, a lot of your time into it, and then you want it to continue. You want to put, you know, things that you were, you were working on, you want that continue, you know, to continue where you were working. So that, that's really why I asked the question. But maybe we can move on to talking a bit more widely about other professional institutions because I was interested in your thoughts on the Levitt report. You might not have read this, um, but this was an independent investigation into the RICS in 2018. You know, my question is, do you believe this is an isolated incident in, in one professional body or could this happen in other professional bodies 
And I don't know whether you want me just to run through. No, it's okay. I mean, I think I I just don't think that the Levitt report can be considered without also considering the Bishard report, which came out last year, which Mm -hmm. was the response to the Levitt report. And I think whether, you know, it's Ricks or or any or, you know, look at the CBI um, or any kind of institute or organization where there are cultural issues. The important thing is if if you're going to do um, an an independent report like Ricks did and Levitt produced, is also then to do the follow up, which is what the Bichard review was. So, uh, you know, hats off to Ricks, because not only did they um, uh, commission a public report into their culture, but they then um, delivered a review uh, that was uh, required into the governance. And now I know that they are trying to implement some of the recommendations um, into, you know, what was a pretty hard hitting report as well. So I think with any organisation, if you um, if you have concerns about culture, which I think a lot of these um, older uh, institutions have, I would highly recommend transparency at, 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 for, for, for everyone. You know, transparency is so important to build trust. You can never have trust if you're hiding away your decisions, the way your money is spent, uh, how those decisions are being made, who is uh, getting to to have a say. You know, all of these things need to be really open, honest, transparent. I I really believe in that. And I, I suppose maybe that's a journalist in me. Maybe that is a journalist in me. Some organisations might say, well, that is naive. Well, actually, not when you look at the kind of surveys that are coming out from the millennials and Gen Zs that Deloitte have done with like thousands of younger people across the world who are in the working environment. And they're saying, we want integrity. We want ethical behaviour. We want inclusion. We want sustainability. We want transparency. You know, there's a lot of despondency from this generation uh, in our, you know, fixed institutions, because they're not changing to adapt to the the new environment where actually there should be less of a parent-child relationship between those who run these organisations and and those they're supposed to be serving, and more of an adult-adult one where we can be open, honest, let's, you know, treat people like the professionals that they are, and talk about the issues and you know maybe by inviting some new voices into those discussions you can come up with some really great solutions actually now i i, I realize that when certainly talking about money these things can make people feel anxious about their roles and so on but when you have a culture of transparency you have an, more of an opportunity to mitigate issues before they arise because people can maybe see them where some of those who are have their their eyes so close to the numbers wherever it might be may not so I think there are lots of um opportunities there but reports Levitt Bishard where you know with Ricks but they've been done elsewhere are a good opportunity for self-reflection and to listen again I always talk about listening to that feedback learning from it reflecting on it and resolving to move forward differently because if you want to survive, that's what you have to do. And if you want to remain relevant, that's what you have to do. Oh, a, lot, a lot of my focus has recently been in 
uh, hearing from students of architecture universities now just it's it, this this next question is really asking for your thoughts on the Bartlett investigation in 2022 it found nine examples and incidents of a particular tutor whose behavior was alleged to include bullying sexist and racist remarks directed particularly towards Chinese students and physical violence in the form of throwing materials at students I've, I've seen I've witnessed that myself uh, in, in school and so let me frame this question and ask you know how and why do toxic cultures develop and how can you prevent them and just before I, I ask you to answer that question I recently did a poll on LinkedIn, 192 architects responded, and we asked the question, have you ever worked in a toxic working environment? 87% <clears throat> said yes, they had, which I thought was, some people said, oh, it's uh, they've, they've made comments underneath the poll saying, oh, you know, that was, that was to be expected. And my question is like, really? Why, yeah, why are you putting up with it? Why are you putting up with it? Yeah, it's such an interesting question about architecture and its toxic culture. I mean, to be fair, it's not it's not unusual toxic cultures. Unfortunately, they exist across sectors. I mean, higher education, academia is is another that has a very similar culture and areas of the NHS. You know, um, uh, there are doctors and surgeons who you know can perpetuate that as well. And there, you know, there are other many, many, many other so finance being another, the city culture and so on. My view on it is a lot of it's to do with the current structure of architecture education, that studio and unit um, approach where the architect is sort of deified, if that's a word, you know, they're, they're, the, they're God and what they say goes. And if they are questioned or somehow challenged, those students are put in their place in no uncertain terms. And that culture has um, been perpetuated, you know, since the sort of part system was put in place. It's not healthy. <laughs> it's not, it doesn't really make sense either, I don't think, in, in many ways, if you want your especially when practices are saying students are coming out and they're not really fit for practice. <laughs> so something's going wrong somewhere in terms of the way that architecture education's done and then readiness for practice. And then students also feeling like, actually, I don't feel like this is a, an environment I want to, to be in. So there's something fundamental about it that has to change. And I think it's that we need to refocus our efforts from being about the architect to being about the architecture. There's a, an amazing a book by Flora Samuel called Why Architects Matter. I'm sure a number of you are familiar with it. She talks about how there's a chapter in there about social architecture and she says that, you know, uh, social architecture is about architecture in the public interest, which in itself is interesting because isn't all architecture supposed to be in the public interest? Uh, that is a very key point. And one of the main reasons why I entered this sector was to try to refocus the efforts. So inclusion efforts is about um, architecture being for public benefits. 
certainly we should be trying to amplify excellence in the profession, where excellence in the profession is sustainable, inclusive, safe and ethical building. That for me is you know, so it's great to see, um, shout out to Alistair Ben Dixon and Karis Rowlands, and then you, Reba Guide to Ethics. Um, really, really great to see that. And I know that there's also Reba Guide to uh, the Building Safety Act. So, you know, you've got the, the, the safety, you've got the ethics covered off. Um, and I think it's uh, when we're looking at how to pull apart these toxic cultures, it does start in the education space, pulling, really examining the nature of how that unit studio structure is is, is de developed and, and implemented, and uh, really refocusing from the architect onto the onto the the product, which, mm. like I said, I did give a shout out to the towards spatial design overlay. You know, the co-design overlay being, I think, really really crucial to to how some of that inclusive behaviors could be developed is just really seriously taking the ego out of out of the profession and focusing on the product and how it is going to impact on society and lives yeah that's a fantastic answer just before we move on to the next question I mean I had an example on the podcast of someone who was quite short in in stature and height and was you was pulled to the front of a class at university and the tallest person in the room was pulled to the front and the tutor was explaining scale. I don't know. It, it just seemed, it seemed to me that this, this student was very upset about that and she'd never had an issue with height before and it stayed with her uh, till now. I think it's, um, yeah, it, there's some strange things going on, but I, get, I hope the tutors learned from it. That's all I can say. Yeah, well, exactly. I think um, this whether students feel safe to raise these issues about how it makes them feel to be, um, you know, pulled out in, in, in these ways. I think it was an interesting lesson about how there's no, you know, average is 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 one thing, but looking at you know, diversity of experience is another. They probably could have made the point in a different way, which we all can on occasion, um, including myself. So university seem to be much more diverse, but architecture practices don't seem to be this way. So how can architecture firms go about improving underrepresentation in their practices? Is it a policy thing or much, much more? Much, much more, of course. I, I mean, I tend to talk about behaviours needing to be first. So again, going back to how do you develop your, your in inclusive behaviours, um, you have to be genuine and authentic about that, because then when you are, then you'll find that it will ripple through everything else. So, for example, when someone coming out of uh, university is thinking, well, where shall I you know, practice? They'll look at websites. They'll look at what's the diversity of the demographic of the leadership. How does the rest of the staffing look? What have you done and talked about um, in a public way regarding matters of social justice and spatial justice um, and community engagement? Um, this is the kind of stuff that you can't necessarily legislate for. It's very 
it needs to be motivated. It needs to come from within. Um, and that's why the cultural intelligence framework is so good, because if you're not motivated, how do you motivate yourself to do these things is a key part of the um, key part of the capabilities. And so the, the inclusive recruitment piece has got to be about creating those inclusive cultures, because it's all well and good hiring to, for diversity to address issues of underrepresentation. But if underrepresented groups come into your organization and they're the only whether it's the only black person brown person woman neurodivergent bi or, or, or trans or gay or whatever whatever the characteristic might be that you were seeking to address in your um, tick box exercise it's really important that those people uh, feel like that's a place where they can be themselves and thrive otherwise they're going to go straight out the door and not only be themselves and thrive but be progressed and developed and retained and remunerated properly and fairly. Um, and so all of those things are, are part of that process. And it's really important to think about how, when you're recruiting as well, not do so just at the entry level when you're trying to address underrepresentation, look to do so at all levels, because there's no doubt about it. You've got a great mix of people entering uh, architectural training courses and education but they're dropping off all the way through that's that's something that it can only be addressed through inclusive behaviors and culture work because that is something fundamentally wrong that only <laughs> means you end up with a particular demographic maintaining the status quo and that feels uncomfortable for the status quo i get that but um we can't afford not to someone show me the business case for maintaining the status quo, I don't think there is a good one. Agree, agree, absolutely. My my next question is related to this, and maybe you've touched on this about transparency, but gender pay gap. I want to say from my time in private practice, which I spent 10 years in practice, you know, individual salaries were always kept secret. No one else knew what each other was was getting paid. You know, what are your thoughts on this as a way of operating a business? It's not one. I think that um, if you want to be um, in, and ensure that you're reducing not only your gender pay gap, but any kind of uh, racial or ethnicity pay gap, you must be transparent and um, have transparent processes for remuneration and uh, development and promotion, bonus pay. Um, people have to should be able to go through very clear procedural practices, which means that um, when they go through the procedure and they reach certain objectives and they make certain goals, it's at that stage they will get a bonus or and that's really transparent for everyone to see. You need to consider as well what's the gap between the highest paid and the lowest paid in an organisation, making sure that it remains a, a sort of fair balance uh, on ratios. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done there. There's a whole there's a whole thing on, on fair pay. It's important to really reflect on, on what that looks like. But I, I, I think it's a cultural thing as well. In the in the UK, we, we don't tend to want to or like to talk about money. But I think, you know, glass door is a, is a good uh, place to look to see how much you should expect for a particular role. And so if more people could go on there to, to share their 
um, their salaries and so on would be would be useful. However, I think it's up to an organisation to be as transparent as it possibly can about who's being paid what and in order to be fair, really. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Glassdoor there. I wasn't going to mention it, but you you can get a whole lot from that that website in terms of architects, practices and toxic culture. I will say no more than that. But uh, yes, please check that one out. We're sticking with work and jobs and practices, but do you have any examples of gender bias that you could share with us? The language that's used in job adverts, there might be things you can pick out that you see and you go, oh my God. Well, it's an interesting one. And again, it might be somewhat of a a fallacy, but there, there is some research behind it that when certain words are used in job ads, that they're more likely to attract women. And if you use a different set, that you're more likely to attract men. There's a great free um, search tool called Gender Decoder, that if you run an ad text through it, it will tell you whether you've used mostly masculine language or feminine language. And that's all the, the research behind that is, is it's cross-reference. So you can find out a little bit more about what they mean by, um, f- you know, sort of women-friendly language and male-friendly language. So things like, you know, um, action, um, pushing forward um, and, and, and so things like that being sort of more masculine and compassionate, empathetic, considered to be more feminine. Now, I don't know I've met several women and maybe it's just the circles that I work in that that doesn't really play a part what does is women this is definitely true women are more likely to go for a role where they can do sort of eight nine or ten uh, out of ten of the the job descriptors requirements and men are more likely to go for it even if they just like the job title whether they think they can do it or not uh, there's probably something there about when you're framing your job adverts, please apply. You know, we're underrepresented in these groups. We So we encourage applications from these groups, even if, you know, they're just one or two things that you think you can do here and you can develop the others or, you know, can please consider your transferable skills, whatever it might be. There, there's certain phrases and words that we can use to encourage underrepresented groups to apply for our roles, as well as, of course, doing that inclusive behaviour work uh, so that your website, your communications, um, your strategy all have inclusion underpinning all of those things as well. I am. Um, I think that there's a lady in who recorded the podcast would be really interested in your answer because she's got a company called Arch Jobs and goes through and looks for um, the language that's used. Um, we all have we we all have quite a, a laugh in a in a WhatsApp group on looking at these adverts and and discussing what what they actually mean. You know, when someone writes a certain way they often mean something completely different. There's some sort of power words that are used. Thank you. I want to ask, how's the book going? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Brilliant. Well, gosh, you know, after I finish recording this, I'm supposed to be writing solid for four days. I've got a deadline um, Monday um, 
where I'd need to deliver some rewrites to Fran at Routledge, the wonderful, wonderful Fran. Um, I'm I'm excited by it. It's good. I have lost a little bit of momentum, so I need to get that back over the summer because I really, really want to deliver it. I know a lot of people have been asking me, when's it coming out? When's it coming out? I'm still writing it, and it does take um, a year, basically, from the time you hand in the initial sort of final manuscript to it actually hitting the shelves. Um, so I'm really keen to try to get that manuscript um, across to Routledge as soon as I possibly can. So for those, uh, if, you, if you're not aware, it's a practical guide to um, EDI and architecture in the built environment. It will have, um, it's going to be really clear about the behavioural piece. You know, what is it about me? What is it about my organisation? What is it about my practice that needs to change so we can be more inclusive of you, whoever you are, and understanding why that piece is so important. But then it's also going to be talking about the procedures, policies and practices um, that you need in terms of how you recruit, how you treat, progress and retain people, how you should view your um, inclusive design and product um, uh, development, and then also procurement stakeholding um, engagement client relationships and so on so and it's going to look it's going to have examples from architecture planning construction project management so it's going I'm going to really try to embrace the wider built environment you know because architects don't work on their own um I know you'd love to some of you (laughs) you you could just wish you could snap your fingers and create designs uh, and have them appear uh, as you'd wish them to uh, from the computer into reality sadly that's not the case we we work in an integrated a collaborative and should be collaborative fashion and so that's why I'm I'm quite keen to ensure that the architecture piece is interwoven with some other examples as well so I'm having case studies of great practice that already exists out there in the built environment and I've also encouraging people to come to me with testimonials so the lived experience piece as well so those who are reading can understand some of the trials and tribulations of those who have lived experience of discrimination but also when things have gone well for them as well so that's it's pretty comprehensive I'm excited about it I think it's going to be useful yeah, so, you know, alongside the the Reba uh, climate guide, safety guide, there's going to be one out there as well uh, from me soon on inclusion as well. Wonderful. Maybe we can get you back on the podcast when that is actually published. That'd be, be really wonderful to talk about that. Well, architects wear black. Yes. <laughs> I, I just want something I've always wanted to ask you, and I'm going to ask you on this podcast. Okay. Why do you like the colour orange so much? <laughs> so I'm wearing orange right now. I've got orange lipstick on as well. I mean, what's not what's not to love about it? It's the colour of a hot sunrise and a cool sunset. It's a vibrant colour. It's positive. It's passionate without being angry. It's juicy fruits. It's it, it summarises me and, you know, wanting and... and positivity um and i guess in all honesty it's a color i can get away with wearing when many other people can't (laughs) i love that response it always makes me wonder why architects do uh seem to to wear black a lot and is is black an inclusive color i don't even know if that's just throw just throw on some color you (laughs) might you might see it change 
everything about how you do your, your, your work. No, wonderful. Thank you so much, Marsha, for being on the second series of the Brock Architect podcast. Where can people find you? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm regularly on LinkedIn at Marsha Ramroop. And please check out my website, unheardvoice.co.uk. Wonderful. Thank you. Please share, subscribe and comment to support the channel. Okay.